Well, good morning, everyone. Excellent. So the end of the marathon, really, isn't it? The last session of the camp, sort of sad in many ways. But I'm happy that my voice has sort of held out, so that's been, that's been one good thing. I was getting a bit worried there for a while. One of the objectives of our uh, study together over this week is to, be, is to reconcile uh, a number of different things that are presented to us uh, about the judgment seat and to try and bring them together in a way that makes sense of both verses, even though they might seem disparate initially. We've tried to reconcile the idea of a quick recognition process at the judgment seat with a more detailed account. Both of those uh, concepts have scripture behind them and parables to support them, but we've tried to sort of bring them together in a way that, that makes sense of both. Other aspects like our reward. In one instance, our reward is, is all equal, like illustrated in the parable of the, the field, the penny a day. And then there are other little references in scripture and this whole sort of body of evidence that indicates that our reward is proportional. And we've tried to reconcile those things as well. Now this morning, as a little exercise before we move on with our final session, we're going to try and reconcile these verses, both of them written by Paul. Um, but on the surface, they seem to contradict each other. And yet they're really at the very, the very heart of understanding, I believe, the whole uh, purpose of the judgment seat and, and our salvation and what's involved with it. So we've got these two verses. Uh, one is 2 Timothy 4, and it's a verse we all know this one very well, where Paul expresses this absolute confidence. There is no doubt, not a, not a skerrick of a doubt in, the, in that verse, that he will be in the kingdom. And he says, I have fought the good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me... A crown of righteousness. So there's, there's that absolute confidence there. Now when I asked this at my own ecclesia and said, well, how do we reconcile these verses? Some of the brethren said, well, Second Timothy is right at the end of his life. So that may be why he's so confident there and not as confident in the other one we'll look at in a moment. But again, that, is that really logical and does that really explain the disparate sort of approach to the judgment seat? And does that mean that at some stage of our life we can be absolutely confident and others not so confident. It doesn't really answer the question. And also, keep in mind that Paul goes wider than just himself, even though he might be at the end of his life. He says his absolute confidence in himself, but also it says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing. So he, he broadens that, that's that confidence level to, to a whole lot of uh, people, not just himself. And yet over in 1 Corinthians 4, which we did touch on a little bit yesterday, not a, not a great deal, Paul expresses this um, reality that he doesn't even judge himself. He says, I don't even judge myself. He says, even though I think, my, my, I think I've done the right thing, I don't know any particular uh, aspect in which I've, I've, I've sort of um, deliberately you know, done the wrong thing. He says, I'm not even going to judge myself. I'm, he says, um, for I know nothing by myself, or I'm, I'm not going to judge myself. And I'm not, all my actions in life, I'm not going to justify and say that they were all right, because I don't really know. The judge will do that for me when he comes. And you think, well, there he is standing there in jeopardy. His, his judgment seat experience with one of jeopardy, that he doesn't know the outcome. He doesn't know whether he made the right decision with John Mark when, 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 he, when he sort of had that fight with Barnabas. He may be wrong there. He doesn't know, and these things could affect his, the outcome of the judgment seat. Um, we know from Romans 7... Romans 7 is one of the most marvellous little insights into the, into the mind of a, of a spiritual man. He, he did things that were wrong. He sinned. 
He says things, plural, things I do, I don't want to do, and those things that I should do, I don't do. He, he experienced sin. He experienced all those things that we, that we know about. Um, and yet, in one verse, absolute confidence. The other one, I don't really know until the judge appears. Now, I'm going to throw it open to you guys. Who wants to maybe suggest how we can reconcile those two together? Any ideas? The camp's got to finish sometime. <laughs> and my plane doesn't go to midnight. <laughs> just doesn't matter if you're wrong, just a suggestion. Think about what we've tried to talk about this, this, this week. What, what are the... Towards the end of the uh, first verse, well, on the left, he's talking about uh, manifesting the hidden things and uh, the, the counsels of the heart. So that would suggest perhaps that he's not going to prejudge how the specifics go. Yes, yes, that's, that's, that's good. That's good. Yep, yep. That's on the right track. That's right. So when, when his very motives are examined, he's not going to prejudge those because he, he's, 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 he's in good conscience, he's doing things, but the, the very motives, like all of us, our motives are, are mixed, aren't they? There are, there are things that will need to be sorted out, even in Paul's life. Um, so I think. Oh, you're a genius. That's a, you can see you're the genius of that family is, can't you? <laughs> no, that's, that's spot on. But, but, but you said the same thing as well in some regards. This is phase one. This is the first stage. This is the sheep and the goats scenario. He has absolute confidence. We'll this morning look at why he would have. That he was in Christ. That he, was, he had faith. That he believed in the promises of God. He acknowledged God's righteousness. He, from that, he had absolute confidence that not just him... But all those who are, who are like him and have that same outlook will, will be in the kingdom. So that the crown of righteousness, the immortality, that was, that was almost a given if, you, if, he, if, you're a, if you're a saint. We'll talk about that. However, the second stage, where we do give account of our life, where our motives are opened up and the two-edged sword cuts asunder the soul and spirit right into the very marrow and the intents and thoughts of our heart and the word of the word in that case, Jesus himself criticizes and examines those, those inner, inner workings of our, our mind and our thoughts. And that, that, that bit, Paul doesn't know. His interaction with the, the, you know, the, the, his enemies in Corinth and those who were um, speaking against him and, and how he's dealt with all that. He thinks he's dealt with it correctly. But as all of us know, in, in any dispute situation or any issue that arises in the meeting, we, we'd like to think we've done the right thing, but there's always niggling thoughts and, and even Paul I believe would have felt that so so hopefully does everyone does everyone agree with that sort of or not have to agree but see what the point of that okay cool so that that I think brings our studies to an end so thanks very much everyone <laughs> if only you're saying if only that would be just so nice if we'd shut up now we'd be all happy so I suppose that the question that then arises is, is um, one we apply to ourselves we think we'll Having looked at all the things theoretical about the judgment seat, and it's sort of been a little bit academic in, in, in my studies and uh, you know, comparing things and, and looking at Greek words, and you think, well, how does that apply to me? What's the likelihood of me being in the kingdom, being part of those, um, all those that are expressed there by Paul that will receive a crown of righteousness? And I suspect that many of us, and I, and I think the majority of you guys here have sort of had a pretty similar upbringing to me and a pretty, pretty similar sort of exposure to to the truth as I've had and if that is the case I'm, I'm just being general here many of us feel deep down when we're pressed that 
we, we find it hard to use those words in an absolute sense about ourselves, that we are going to be in the kingdom. I remember, and this is, the, this is one of the, the seminal little experiences of my life that sort of <laughs> led me down this road, and there's been a few, and I'll, I'll mention some of them as we go, but one of them was um, many, many years ago when I was you know, young and skinny and all that sort of stuff, I was on a committee uh, organising a young marriage week. I don't know if you're, any of you remember that, and it was pretty... It was a pretty unique um, event and we got Brother Harry Tennant from England. He'd never really spoken at our, our ecclesias over in Sydney before. So we, we sort of got him to fly over and, and to lead these studies. Because I was on the organising committee, I had the privilege of sort of you know, picking him up at the airport and those sort of things and, having, and sitting around with some others and having a discussion with him. And believe it or not, and I'm not making this up, it's in my notes from my previous talks, he'd just been in Perth. So... I'm not, not having a go at you guys in any way. It's just, just how it all panned out. He'd just been in Perth and he was distressed. And I saw this visible. He's almost, you know, he, he was getting old, so he's sort of shaking and face is a bit ruddy. And he's distressed about the people he'd spoken to in Perth and the people who'd confided in him. He'd had a lot of people talking to him. How the people he spoke to in Perth did not think they would be in the kingdom. And he was distressed by that. He, he thought, and, but, but, but it's my reaction I really want to think about this morning. I was distressed that he was distressed in a way because I thought, well, isn't that how we're supposed to think, Harry? You know, why are you so cut up about this, Harry? Isn't that what every righteous person or everyone who's, who's taking the truth serious should feel? And I was, I was concerned that he was concerned, if you know what I mean. I couldn't, I, I'd, I'd never heard a sort of what we might call a senior brother or someone who's a, a well-known you know, expositor of the word and, and, and is very well-versed in the Bible express things like that. I'd never, never really heard that expressed or that sentiment expressed and so it sort of started me thinking it was one of the occasions in my life where I started thinking wow that's funny that there are people in the in the brotherhood who think that we will be in the kingdom and are and think that we should be confident about that and think we shouldn't shy away from that so that was one of my um one of my little sort of as I said a little seminal moment that, that started me thinking that and started question started me questioning my my outlook um we ask the question, what is the likelihood of salvation? In, in the, uh, the, the, the Christian world, if you like, in the theological schools that uh, make up our, 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 the, the Christian world around us, there are probably two extremes um, in, this, in this question. And there's what, what is called the Calvinist view and the Puritan view. And the Calvinist view is based on this, this extreme doctrine of, of election, where God picks out certain people, and if you are saved then you are always saved. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Once saved, always saved. And in a sense, if you've, if you've accepted Jesus, it doesn't have to be a very drawn-out process. You just accept Jesus as your Lord and your Saviour, um, you, you'll be saved eventually. Even if you make wrong paths in your life and go off the track, eventually, because you're, you are saved, you'll be brought back into the fold at some stage in some way and you'll be saved. So it's this... Uh, you, this oh, what's the actual phrase? Um, sort of, um, it's this absolute salvation that's built into that, that doctrine, this um, assurance, absolute assurance. On the other side, you've got the more what we call the Puritan view um, that says only a few will be saved at the end of the day. And examples like you know, Noah are sort of very, very much the front of mind for that view, that Noah, only eight souls were saved. There are only 12 apostles. You know, there's only been a very few group, a very small group, very few. Even in Israel, there's only a very small subgroup of Israel that really will be saved. So they're, they're the two extremes. And like, I suppose, a, a, a lot of cases, the, the truth's probably somewhere in the middle of those extremes. 
For me, this quote in Philippians is, a, I think, a nice little balance to, to sort of set the, I suppose, set the scene for what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, Philippians 2 has this little, you know, little interplay with the word working or working or ergon as, as, as it is in the Greek. Or it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So there's this aspect where we have to put effort into our own salvation. We have to work at that. And if you just stop reading the verse there and think, well, that's, that's really up to me. But then you read on, it says, for, because, because. So what do we put effort in? Because it's God that works in you, both to do of his good pleasure, the will and to do of his good pleasure. So you're part of God's work. God's working in you, therefore you work with God. And there's this sort of balance, this, this sort of, I feel, more uh, complete picture that's presented in those, in those stanzas in that, in that particular part of scripture. Now I just want to address this concept this morning and, and, um, and, and look at this and spend a little bit of time on this. We won't have time to look at a lot of verses this morning from your own Bibles because I'm going to put a lot of them up on the screen. I do apologise about that. And I'm going to have to talk pretty fast to get through it. I'm sort of trying to combine two sessions here, so I'm going to just wrap it on a bit. I do have a paper I've written on, on this subject, on, on, on this subject a little bit, and I'm, I thought, I was talking to Damien about whether I go and photocopy it in town and hand it out, but then I'm thinking, well, I might just send it to the Yorks, and um, those who want it, you know, Eliza could just email it to people if, if you want to. If it's got more of the detailed argument and probably laid out a bit more uh, succinctly and logically, then I'll, I'll sort of wrap it on with this morning, so hopefully that might help. Often our view, the view we have of salvation... Um, is like a, what I might call a circumstantial view. It depends where we are at the time the angel comes and takes us away for, for judgment. And that, that view is sort of reinforced by the way we look at some of the parables, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that later on. So we've got this view that, you, look at this, this blue line here represents if you're in the, the pale of salvation, if you're one of those that God considers his children that he will give eternal life to. And we say, well, we, at baptism, most of us don't have too hard a time comprehending that at baptism we're inside that, that circle, we're inside the pale of salvation. So we, we rejoice when one of our children gets baptised because we sort of, there's, this, there's this sort of um, weight taking off our shoulders that if they, something happened to them or you know, they were in an accident or whatever, that they are baptised. We, so we sort of intuitively have that, that, that feeling. But we, we sort of have this sort of um, idea in our, in our psyche that we can pop out of that sort of circle due to circumstances in our life. We might have a, a, a spell or a period of time where we stop praying and we have a bit of a low point in our, in our life. We, we stop praying or we, we don't do the readings or we, some of us, in a more extreme case, might even stop going to the meeting because we're depressed or we've got issues in our life or there's an issue in the ecclesia itself and we just don't feel any value there or, or whatever it might be. And we sort of feel that, there, there's, that if, if we're going through one of these spells that it sort of puts us out of... Um, out of the kingdom altogether and out of the pale of salvation and we might spend some time in our life in that state and if the angel was to return right here and there um, then we're in a bit of a bad situation that, that would be we'd, we'd be like one of the ten virgins and we just don't have any oil and we're just at that point in time we're goners so that's sort of the, the perspective we have but then something might happen and we get ourselves back in on track and we we start doing the readings and we stop you know whatever we're doing that we think's put us outside and we have a nice period of time where it's all going well for us and then something else happens in our life and, and we sort of go through another 
period of, you know, we don't feel that spiritual. And, and so we've got this sort of in and out process. And hopefully, towards the end of our life, it all comes together and we get our act together. And when we get older, we start becoming more spiritually mature and things start making sense. And I really hope that was the case. And I thought as I got older, you know, it would all, all get easier and I'd start becoming more sensible. And, but it sort of hasn't worked out for me either. So this is all about justifying me, you can see. We reach this spiritual maturity later on, but during that, that process from baptism to spiritual maturity, there's a few you know, sort of troughs along the way that really put us outside salvation. Now, I'm going to question that idea this morning, and, that, and this, is what, this is really what we're going to, we're going to talk about. Um, one, of, one of the best things you can ever invest in is a, a box set of CDs by Brother Harry Tennant uh, that's got, I think it's like 50 CDs, there's a lot of CDs in it. And it's got all these studies he's done all around the world and, and lectures. And, it's, and I've got it in my car and I have to say, one of the best investments of my life, listening to Brother Tennant, he's very balanced and, and, and considered approach to scripture. He's just, just so amazing. Anyway, I've, I, I've, I've taken a little section out of his studies on Hebrews here, um, which talks about this particular issue. And poor old Sue's at the type it up for me while I dictated it to her. But here it is. I'll read it. I know you might not all be able to read it from there, but he says... When it says in Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, it means what it says. No, that's really bad, isn't it? It means what it says. No, I forget. But you can just try and imagine Harry just saying that. It means what it says. The Lord knows that nobody walks perfectly after, this, after the spirit and that some of us are at times affected by the flesh. But there is still no condemnation. Interesting concept. I know that sometimes we look at that verse and the, possibility of, uh, um, and the possibility is that people say, wait just a second, it's not as easy as that. The bit at the end says, those who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. It does mean what it says. And you're only out of condemnation when you walk after the spirit and you're in condemnation when you walk after the flesh. He said, in which case, if you take that like in a literal sense, in which case you're constantly red and green. You're, you're changing colour all the time. You're moving from one place to another. I've got to stop it. Okay, <laughs> I'm just so passionate about it. But you can see what he's saying. It's like if that's the if that's the, if that's what how it works, you know, uh, in in one day I could you know come home from work a bit angry and kick the dog and yell at the kids and then I'm you know if the angel turns up I'm gone then I do do the readings later on or whatever and it, it sort of it doesn't work like that. He says now Romans eight doesn't say that. It says who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? So there isn't a charge against us at all. No charge at all. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't work on a debit and credit method at all. He's working on those who are in Christ Jesus. And since Christ is not condemned, the saints are not condemned. We don't have to go through life with this terrifying fear. Now, there's concepts in here. We're all aware of the concepts, but have we made these concepts real? This This is where we're going to go this morning. Made these things real. We are in Christ. Therefore, there's no condemnation. Not because I'm walking after the Spirit consistently and achieving some faith level. That It's because I'm in Christ. Christ is not condemned and I'm not condemned. And it really is just the Christadelphian doctrine of the atonement. No more than that. Put in simple words. And, and this, is, this is, is this a reality? Is this true or is it not? And I think that's, that's what we've got to sort of come to grips with in our own mind. Now a lot of us are going to be saying, yes, I get that. It seems true. It, it, there's a lot of power in that. But, but what about, what about, and there's all these verses that are going to go flash up in your mind as you're sitting here now. And this morning I want to look at some of those verses, as I said, it's going to be very quick, I'm just going to quickly throw up 
Um, some sort of quick answers to these verses, if you like. If you want to get the paper that goes through in more detail with references to other brethren, etc., then you, you're welcome to you know, get that off Eliza or whatever when I, when I send it over. But, um, but for now, we'll just quickly put them up as we run through them. So this is, this is Brother, Brother Tennant's um, very nice exposition on it. And he focuses on this idea of being in. You are in Christ. And this, this is really, I think, at the very, very crux of, uh, of, of what's been achieved here. We are in Christ. Now, it's not just Brother Tennant that says this, but there's, there's many of our, um, uh, our brethren have written about this sort of issue and, and usually written on it on, in, in the lofty terms of the atonement and God's scheme of reconciliation. So it's written in such a way that it almost has a theoretical aspect to it that that we find it hard to apply to reality. And, you know, the, the best exposition of it I've come across is, is in Elpis Israel. In, in, in um, Brother Thomas's writing in part the first of Elpis Israel, there's a section there called The Constitution of Sin and another one called The Constitution of Righteousness. And Brother Thomas makes this really powerful point and he says it's like, in his case, he applies it to his own case, he said, when you move from the United States, when you move from England, you're a citizen of England, and then when you want to live in America, you get a new passport and you become a citizen of a, of a whole new regime and a whole new you know, set of um, circumstances. And all the privileges that apply to you as a citizen are yours by virtue of the fact that you've transferred to this new realm, if you like. And just, I've just picked out a couple of sentences here. It says, there are two states or kingdoms in God's arrangements. There are two kingdoms that exist, which are distinguished by constitution. These are the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. The citizens of the former are all sinners. The heirs of the latter are saints. So this is getting closer to the point. We are saints because of, we have transferred our membership, we've transferred our citizenship into another realm. Now, how, do we, how does this transfer take place? Does it only happen, you know, we get baptised, and as I said in our first session, baptism gives you, qualifies you to sort of get into the game. And then after baptism, we then got to achieve something or, or reach some sort of spiritual maturity before the transfer happens. Well, well, that's not the case. He says, mark the sacred style and description of sinners, the script, descriptive of sinners, after they've been placed on the constitution of Israel's commonwealth, which is the kingdom of God. You that were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now, this applies to us now. You that, um, uh, through him you have access by one spirit to the Father and are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, fellow heirs and of the same body, partakers of God's promises in Christ by the gospel. And this is going to be the, this is the mechanism that this happens. The gospel, what does Romans 1 tell us about the gospel? It is the power of God, the dunos, it's the power of God unto what? Unto salvation. It's the mechanism. The gospel is like a, a power, a force that, that, that leads us to salvation. And he says, by being partakers of God's promises in Christ by the gospel, he says, in this remarkable contrast is discoverable a great change in state and character predicted of the same persons. How is this transformation affected? This question is answered by the phrase, in Christ by the gospel. And the in expresses the state and the by, the instrumentality by which the state and character are changed. In Christ is the, is the way it happens. By the gospel is the instrumentality of that process. Now again, theoretically we know this. Many of us have done Elpis Israel and Elpis Israel classes and 
marked all these in and, and looked it up. But I'm trying to get us now to say, well, if this is real, how does it apply to me? And is it real to me? And so, you know, in that little article, Dr. Thomas says this inward is really the key to it, being in Christ. It's exactly what Brother Tennant said as well, this idea of being in. We are in. And it's, and it's a little a metaphor and a word picture and a concept that runs through Scripture. There's lots of in examples we could talk about. Romans 8, those that are in Christ are not condemned. Genesis 7, they went into the ark, and by very virtue of the fact they went into that ark, they were saved. In, in the Passover story, they had to stay in the house, and, and that house was then protected by the blood of the lamb. So they were, they were in that house and received the benefits of being in there. Colossians 1, this is, this is a, an amazing concept that we sort of can glibly read over sometimes, that we are now, now transferred into... It says, it says translated in the, in the authorised Bible, the idea of we're transferred into the kingdom of God right now. The kingdom of God exists in a particular form and, and it's an embryonic form. But that is the ecclesia of God, the kingdom of God in, in embryo. However, and this is where we part company with the Calvinists, you can put yourself outside by your behaviour, by your actions, by a deliberate choice, by accepting even wrong doctrine, you can put yourself outside that state. And there's a whole lot of outwards that appear right through Scripture. I've just picked a few of them up here. First John 2 talks about those who were, who were accepting, you know, would appear Greek philosophical concepts into, the, into their doctrines. It says they went out from us because they were not of us. So they put themselves outside. Some will depart from the faith. And there's that, you know, it's, gives, it's, a, it's a movement word to describe... They've changed their, their position before God. Um, um, some, yeah, that famous quote in Galatians 1, it says they, we are removed from, from the truth unto another gospel. The idea of rejecting a heretic or a rep, someone who has um, sort of left the truth intellectually and, and, uh, and doctrinally, again, the idea of moving them outside that state is there. And they've departed from the living God by going back to Judaism or going back to going, leaving the truth and leaving the principles of the truth. So the idea of being in Christ is a powerful thing and it's efficacious, it's real, it's true, it's effective in our life, effective in, our, in terms of salvation, but then we can put ourselves outside that uh, by our actions in our, in our life. And this takes us back to the idea I introduced on, our, I think, our second session, the idea that our names are in the book of life and that appears from all the evidence and the, the quotes we looked at to be the default setting. When you are baptised, your name is in the book of life. That is the default setting. Yes, your name can be removed. And there are many examples in Scripture of those whose name was removed from the book of life. Judas is a classic case. Judas went out and put himself outside that, 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 the, the influence of the light that he was blessed to have. The prodigal son goes out. The ecclesias in Ephesus and Laodicea were, were moving in that direction and, and about to be removed. So this, this idea of our name being in the book of life correlates to the idea of being in Christ, doctrinally being in Christ by accepting the gospel. When you think about it, that was the basic message of the apostles, wasn't it? When the, the Philippi jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? To be saved, that was a question. It says, Believe on Jesus Christ and be baptised, you and your household, and you'll be saved. 
And, and that, was, that was as simple as, as, as it got, really, in that sense. Now, this is, we're going to talk about, then, the confusion we can have with being saved by accepting the gospel and the, the demand of spiritual growth. We need to grow spiritually in Christ. And we'll talk about those issues in a, in a moment. Now, many of us have this idea, and I've tried to just graph it here with these squiggly lines, that you know, we, at, at, at conversion or baptism, we start this process. And we, as I said, it's like we're qualified to be in the, in the, in the race. And in our life, we, we go through ups and downs, maybe, and we, we, we have experiences and growth. And eventually, we reach this spiritual maturity. Some call it God manifestation or, or whatever we might call it, maturity in Christ, you know, teleos or, or the different words in the, in the Greek that, that cover that concept. And it's when we reach this spiritual maturity that we are in the, the pale of salvation. That, that we don't know when we'll get into it, but eventually, we, hopefully through the grace of God, we, we grow in our life and we then end up in the, in the pale of salvation. Now this, this idea seems to have intuitive support from quotes like you know, James talks about um, faith without works is dead and he gives the you know, ultimate example of Abraham offering Isaac. We'll talk a little bit about Abraham in a moment. You think, well, Abraham reaches this absolute spiritual maturity where he finally gets to the point where he can take a knife and slit the throat of his own son. This is an absolute concrete maturity that, that he got to. And at that point, it was, you know... Um, uh, counted under him for righteousness, but before that he was only learning and growing. That's not quite. That's not quite the spirit, the scriptural concept. So we want to go from this idea that we 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 sort of fall in and out of salvation to an idea that I believe is more scriptural. That we are in that at baptism, and during that time we have ups and downs in our life, and we grow, and we make mistakes, and we develop, and we do achieve, God willing, in our life spiritual maturity, but all within the confines of salvation. And our spiritual journey is one of faith and growth. As Romans 1 says, you know, from faith to faith, from one quality of faith, which might be just the faith of accepting the truth and being baptised, to another more deeper level of faith that is like Abraham's, that he could, he could offer his own son. It's a, it's a journey, but the journey is done within the pale of salvation, not dropping in and out of it. And yes, there are downs in that process, there are times when we make mistakes, times that we regret things we said, stands we might have even taken in our you know, decade previous about an issue that we really wish we could go back in time and, 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 and heal some things we've said and done. You know, these things are part of, as I've, read there, as I've written there from Hebrews 12, the chastisement of the Lord. As Hebrews 12 says, God is working with his sons and he's allowing them to go through these problems. In some cases, he's bringing these problems directly, it may be. And, and, and he's allowing them to experience these, these things because they're all part of the growth process, like any father and son relationship. He's disciplining us and, and putting us through these things. It doesn't mean that we, in these low points, we fail to be his son. That doesn't make sense of the whole father-son relationship. It's because the son goes through a bad patch. He's, you're not my son anymore. That doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't work on, on any level. And it doesn't work uh, when it comes to salvation. However, as we said before, and I don't want to trivialise this either because this is a very important point, we can put ourselves on a path that is downward spiralling rather than, rather than heading towards spiritual maturity. 
And there, at some point in that process, we can make shipwreck of our faith. We can put ourselves outside, uh, or make ourselves a reprobate, or put ourselves outside God's pale of salvation. And, um, and Paul even says that, that there was a reality that he himself, if he, if he wasn't careful, could put himself um, outside of salvation. So that, that is a reality as well. Now, we can apply this principle to many Bible characters. Um, in fact, every study you do, apart from a few exceptions like you know, Joseph and uh, um, uh, is it, is it some, some Daniel, Daniel and Joseph, the, the rest of them have major flaws purposely presented for us that we can, we can look at. And you can apply this graph to many people. Look at the apostles. Though. The apostles are such a stark uh, example. I, f- I, find that I find a lot of comfort in, the, in, the, in this example because... You know, the, the lofty calling of Christ that we, we, we've been looking at with Jonah, the, the, the demand on perfection that is there is, is so, is, can be daunting, really, and we all fall short of that. And you think, well, how does God look at me when I'm, I'm falling short of that? I'm not reaching that perfection. He says, be ye perfect as my Father is in heaven is perfect. Where, where do I stand from a salvation point of view as I'm, as I'm trying to achieve that? And the apostles are a classic example. You know, look at their... Look at their immaturity in those early, those early days with the Lord. You know, arguing about who was going to be the greatest. I mean, it's almost, it's almost comical when you read that. You, you think, you idiots. You know, you're reading the, you're reading the, the story. You idiots. What are you, why are you doing that? It's so immature. And, and, um, even their, even their doctrinal perspective was not quite clear, wasn't it? They, they didn't even understand the overall message that Jesus had to actually die and, and uh, raise again. So there was, there was even there was, there was shortfalls in, in that understanding. Even their, their courage and commitment to Christ was questioned. They all fled when he was arrested. Peter goes on to deny him. Um, even when the Lord needed them the most, they weren't there for him. Even if they had have just, you know, just been there at that crucial time, but they all slumbered and slept and they really didn't really contribute and help him in, in, in a great deal. And... and Often Jesus would say to them, Oh, ye of little faith, when they reacted you know, in a particular situation. He would look at their reaction when they were scared in the boat or whatever. He'd say, Oh, ye of little faith. So they only had little faith at that time. And we ask the question, well, when, when, did, when did salvation kick in for these men? Was it when, you know, we read later in the, gospel, in, in the, in the um, epistles where they reach this spiritual maturity, where they become pillars in the ecclesia? Is that when God considers them to be in the book of life? And the reality is no. The reality is Jesus considered them at that point to be his brother, mother, sister or brother. I might have said brother twice there, but you know what I'm trying to say. Or when he said to them, rejoice, emotionally respond to the fact that your names are written in heaven right now. I want you to rejoice. Not Rejoice that maybe in the future you'll get more maturity and you'll be... Uh, no, he says, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So in a sense, they had shown the little faith. They had, they had followed Jesus. And despite all the mistakes they would all make, particularly, you know, Peter's ones are, are glary and left on record for us for that reason. Despite the fact that they would fail uh, in, in many ways, they were still in the pale of salvation. They were still in that that circle of, of, uh, of salvation. Now, not all of them were. Judas went out. Sorry, brother. No, sorry. Yep. Would you mind just 
That's it. You want that Galatians one six one or or? Oh, okay. You've got. You happy with that? No problem. Okay, so the apostles, Judas went out. So he was on the journey with them at one point, and then he makes a decision. And, and many, as many different, um, many different studies looking at the motivation of Judas, whether it was pure greed, as it appears, or whether it, disappointment with the with, with the, the, the um, political approach that Jesus was taking, and, and, and etc., or whether it was a rebuke he got from. Uh, when he sort of talked down to Mary and washing Jesus, uh, who was washing Jesus' feet, all, all, there's all these different reasons. But whatever it was, he uh, he made a decision to leave, and he went out, and he puts himself outside that pale of salvation. Now, many of us have grown up on this, um, I suppose, concept of God manifestation when we're young people, and God manifestation has been uh, a concept that's been put before us quite often, and. And I'm not saying everyone thinks this, this could be me because I'm a bit dim, but the idea I had of God manifestation was, you know, you just gra- on this graph here you've got your, your faith levels and you've got your time in the truth. And as your time in the truth grows, as you get more uh, knowledge of God's word and you, you, you know, have more experiences and, and you um, learn more about God and, and, and your relationship with God grows, that your faith level grows in this sort of uh, trajectory like, like we see on this graph here. That's sort of the, the impression I sort of had of God manifestation. So I was looking forward to when I hit... You know, my mid-40s, whatever, and I'd be so mature and everything would just sort of click into place and it, it, it doesn't really happen that way. And so if we have that view, we can feel a bit of a disappointment when, when, when life doesn't work that way. Now, I just want to graph the life of two people, Peter and, and Abraham, very quickly and just show you that God manifestation doesn't work on that trajectory at all. It doesn't work in that way. Yes, behind the scenes, there definitely is a development taking place, but it's not in that sort of businessman-like methodology that we're th- or method that we're thinking. Now look at Peter. Just graph his life. There's his faith level. There's his time in the truth. Well, he responds to the call of Christ. So we could say, well, that's a demonstration of faith, which it was. But then there's a, many incidents in his life where Jesus um, rebukes him for, for his attitudes and, what he's, what he's, uh, and, and statements that he makes. And Jesus says, depart from me, you know, um, he, the occasion where he walks on the water, you could say, was a, a pinnacle of faith, where he stepped out of the boat. Yes, he floundered, but at least he got out of there and, and sort of put himself in that environment. But then he's later on in that, I think it's almost the same chapter, or the very next chapter, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan. And he said, well, there's a, there's a low point in Peter's life. Then he, then he makes that statement that, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you know, this is just an amazing statement that I'm going to build my ecclesia on. And then... He denies Christ, you know, not, not much long after that and, and sort of hits a, a low point in his life. And then, of course, he cut off Malchus's ear. We, could, we didn't even graph everything in there. And he goes on eventually to become a pillar in, in God's ecclesia. Even as a pillar, though, he still, learnt, he still you know, there were these prejudices and these things that he had that God had to work with. You know, the story of the Cornel- before the Cornelius conversion, God had to send the sheet of animals. Later on, even when he's a, you know, he's a very respected brother and a very senior you know, and, and mature brother in the truth, Paul has to withstand him face to face because of his attitudes. So you, know, you never really sort of just keep going up and up and up and becoming more perfect in that way. And so Peter's trajectory was not like that. It was more like that, ups and downs in his life. It doesn't mean that when he hit a low, he was out of the pale of salvation. It doesn't mean when he was, he'd hit the high that he was in the... The, the pale and, and he was fine. It's not how God works. 
God's strength, as 2 Corinthians says, God's strength is made perfect in weakness. It's actually, the process actually occurs at these lows in our life. That's where God works with us. And that's something we've got to, we've got to keep in mind. In fact, sometimes when the, everything seems to be successful and good is where we're, we're not as spiritual as, as, as we could be. Abraham, another classic case of faith to faith, of, of development of faith. He leaves Ur and you know, arrives in Shechem. That's an, an upper in his life, an example of faith. You know, it's a, it's a, it, it really he crosses uh, Euphrates, etc., and he becomes a, a Hebrew. But then it's virtually the very next chapter, chapter 12, he goes down into Egypt, he's fearful for his life, he's worried that Pharaoh's going to kill him and take Sarah off him or Sarai off him, makes up this little half-lie, half-truth thing and gets himself you know, a, a web of lies that sort of has him trapped and, and eventually it's only God's intervention that saves him from that point. And it's, it's at these low points, I believe, where Abraham's faith is really developed. The Abraham in Genesis 22 does not happen by magic. The Abraham of Genesis 22 comes because of the Abraham in chapter 13. It's all part of the same, same story, isn't it? It doesn't mean when he was in Egypt that God said, oh, well, if, you know, if the angel comes back now, you're not in the kingdom at all. He rescues Lot. I suppose that's an upper. The story of Hagar, some people interpret it slightly different, but I, I see it as a, a down point where he's trying to, he's trying to bring about um, the, the fulfilment of the promises his own way. Later on, the promises are renewed to him, and so there's a, there's a sort of a, a, an upper, a faith, a faith upper in his life. The story of Gerar with Abimelech seems to be a down where he repeats the exact same problem back here in Egypt. Sacrifice of Isaac, of course, is, is, is up again. And again, Abraham's faith was not this getting better and better and better all the time like some sort of you know, athlete who's just continually training in that sense. God's strength is not developed like an athlete in that sense. Yes, there's an underlying development taking place, but the, the development of Abraham went like that. And when Abraham was laying on his stomach in front of Pharaoh, laying there on the cold marble floor, his bowels you know, just about to gush and his teeth chattering and wondering if he's going to be impaled. Or, you know, that's when God's faith, that's when, that's when God's strength was working in him, at a low point like that. Um, and, and that, as I said, is part of the whole process. One of the, one of the um, it's, it's interesting, one of my objectives, my um, practical objectives from these studies is, is almost identical to, to Jonah's in, in a way. And it's, it's interesting how they, if the two studies will, you'll see come together in that way. Um, Jonah finished up this beautiful study yesterday with the two houses and, and, and just saying that let's build our house on, on the rock, the words of Christ, that, that we can withstand the, the winds and the storms and the trials and the problems that come upon us and just, just hang in there, hang in on the words of Christ, hang in on the rock and, and build our life on that. And in a sense, I believe that's the real message. And, and my, my take-home message is, the, the words are slightly different, the concepts are the same. He that endures to the end will be saved. That's my message. If you endure to the end, you will be saved. And I believe a lot of the parables, we, we sort of miss that concept, looking maybe too intricately at other aspects of the parables and miss this, this overwhelming idea that, it's remaining in Christ. That really is what our salvation is dependent on. And when we're in Christ, or when we're staying within the, the confines of the, the ecclesia, if you want to use that term, or the, the truth, or within the confines of God's word, God can work with us. And, and the spiritual development can take place if, we're, if we stay there. 
and we don't depart. And that's, that's, that's really the, the power, I think, of these things. Now, we haven't got time to dwell on this in too much detail, but the, one, of the, one of the interesting parables is the parable of the, uh, the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. And many of us, I think, pick up this concept through Sunday school that, you know, uh, we come to Bible schools, we go to the meeting and we get the oil levels increased and then if we don't do the readings and we sort of don't go to Bible class, whatever, the oil goes down and hopefully we've got enough oil in the tank when Christ returns that, that he looks at the oil levels, maybe drops one of those oil indicators in to see what oil level we've got, whether we're saved or not. That's sort of a, um, you know, a, a, a concept that, that, that some of us think. Now I just want to present a slightly different way of looking at that parable. You may not agree with this, particularly on your first view of it, um, and, and that's fair enough, and it won't really change the overall uh, um, theme of our study, but I believe it's, it's tapping into the whole purpose of God in our life. The context of these parables, not just the Matthew parables, but the, the similar parables that are given in Luke, the context is, it says, he added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Now, this is, this is the background objective of these parables. Yes, there's going to be lots of other little lessons we're going to pull out of it, but the overall sort of punch of these parables is that Jesus is not going to immediately appear to those people. And he then progresses into the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24, for example. The question he's asked, which, which sort of prompts the whole prophecy, when, when are these things going to happen? When are you going to restore again the kingdom to Israel, is the, is the sentiment there. When are these things going to be? And Jesus goes on in that, in that prophecy and says, look, there's going to be a lot of, lot of time, a lot of history is going to go under the bridge before these things happen. He says, there's going to be wars, rumours of wars and troubles. He said, the end is not yet. Don't, don't think it's because you see some wars in the Roman Empire. That's, the end is, is still a long way off. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then he says... But he that endures to the end shall be saved. This is the appeal of Jesus in these parables. Now, again, you'll have to follow this up in your own time, a lot of, a lot of you, but that, that word for lamps that we often um, uh, think about and, and have depicted in our Sunday school plays, etc., when we look at this parable, we often think of lamps in the sense of these little, tiny little lamps with a little wick on it that we, you carry around or you might read a, a manuscript with. The actual word... It's only used five times in the New Testament, the word lamps, and it's used in an interesting place in John 18 when the um, soldiers come to arrest Jesus. They have these, it's translated, torches. They were torches. They weren't little lamps so much. The torches don't have oil in them as such. What you do is the top of the torches often had some leather or even material at the top of wooden, like a stake, a wooden stake, and you'll dip them in the oil and light them and then have to re-dip them once they went out. So that's that's more of the idea than the little sort of oil lamp that we sometimes think about. Now, look at what happens in this parable. The five foolish took no oil, none. They never had any oil to start with, not a, not a drop. Okay, this is, this is slightly different than the idea of our oil levels running up and down through our life. They never had oil with them. It says they took no oil with them at all. And their lamps, as I said, didn't contain actual oil itself. Look at the five wise. They didn't, they didn't have oil in their lamps either. They just had the lamp and it says they took oil in their vessels. Or the, uh, the, I think the uh, ESV's got flasks. They took oil in their flask, not in their torch, not in their lamp. And basically, 
uh, other translations have jars or flask. The five foolish were not prepared for the long wait that would come. And so when the, 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 you know, this long wait occurred and they slumbered and slept, etc., when the bridegroom finally showed, at that point they had no oil whatsoever. They were not ready for that long wait. There's no measurement of oil levels. There's no discussion of topping up or you know, refilling your vessel with oil. It's a, it's a binary response, oil or no oil. That's, 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 that's the, the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins. And it's when, when the bridegroom comes, those with oil are able to light up their torches, duck it into their flask, light it up, and they're ready. They're there at the, at, when the bridegroom finally comes. They've, they've lasted right through that whole time with oil. And I think what we're really seeing as one of the, the principal lessons in this parable is those that endure to the end will be saved. Those who have oil will be there right to the very end. The others don't have oil and they sort of, they nick off. Basically they do. They all, they all go run away to find oil and it's, it's, they're not there. That's the point. They're not there at the end. Now, how do we apply that to what we've been talking about? Well, again, we've got a timeline that runs here in the, in the blue. Those that take oil in their flask are there right at the end. When the bridegroom comes, they're there. They haven't run off. They're not out of, of, of the event. And so we start off at baptism, and we don't really know who's going to be there right at the end, do we? And I'm sure all of us are shocked as I am about some of our, our friends and, and people that seem to be you know, front and centre in the work of the truth and have been a central part of our, our lives, we've even looked up to, who were not there at the end. And I've just made some hypothetical scenarios here. You know, Brother X leaves his wife and marries the secretary at work and leaves the truth. I mean, that's happened, that happens and is appearing to happen more and more. Sister Y, she leaves the truth and goes and joins the Pentecostal church. Brother and Sister Z, they basically just drift away. They don't turn up at the meeting anymore. They sort of drift out of the truth and eventually they consider themselves agnostic or atheist. So they've just drifted away. At the end of the day, they had no oil. And we don't know who has oil and who has not. The, 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 the result at the end determines that. Are they there at the end with their lamps lit up to, to welcome the bridegroom? That's the indication. It's a bit like in John's study. We don't know who's built on the sand and who's built on the rock. It's, it's not, we don't know that. The, the results at the end, those who survive the storms of life and, and are there at the end, have built on the rock. That's how we'll know. And so in this, this case, the same thing. Those with oil are the ones that are there at the end to welcome the bridegroom when he comes. And as I said, I think, it's, I think this concept in Matthew 24 is those that endure to the end is, is really the, the, the power of this study. Now, just in the few minutes that remain, I want us to think about verses that seem to go against everything I've said this week. And there's, there's, there's quite a number. And particularly, you know, what often happens is sometimes these verses can almost become, these phrases and verses become almost mantras in our ecclesial environments, depending where we've grown up and and, and uh, what things were emphasised. And, and, and there's a lot of verses, a lot of concepts that, that, that have been thrown up, used by chairmen, used in prayers, used at young people's events, used all our life, that would indicate that uh, salvation is a, is a scarcity, that not many will be saved, that it's hard to be saved, that only a few will be saved. And these verses are probably coming to your mind right now. And even though you might have consented to some of my concepts through the week and then seeing what Brother Carter says and Brother Tennant and, and Brother Roberts and Brother Thomas, etc. You, you've still got these niggling thoughts in your, in your mind thinking, but what about, but what about, but what about, but what about? And, and we just want to quickly look at some of these. As I said, 
This is really a whole session, really, more of a workshop session, but we're just going to put these up for us to think about now. One of the things that a lot of people find daunting is the absolute demands that Jesus makes. And they're, they're, they're unequivocal. The demands of Jesus are perfection and nothing less. And, and that, we find that daunting because none of us, none of us know we'll ever achieve that. And even the Apostle Paul, if that, if, that was, if that was his perspective as well, would find it hard to say there's a crown of righteousness because he never achieved perfection. I mean, we know from Romans 7, we know from his life that he, there were things that he did wrong. So how do we reconcile this idea of this, this absolute demand for perfection? There's no, there's no middle ground with Christ. It's all, as I said before, it's you know, even the parable of the talents. The only, the two, he gives two extremes. He says zero response or zero return on, my, on the investment or 100%. So like, it's, it's, it's presented as an either-or sort of situation. And when you think about it, in the righteousness of God, that has to be the demand of Christ. You can't, be, you can't say, look, I represent God and, 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 I, and I'm showing what God's like and look, if you just reach this sort of level then, then it should be okay. He has to make this absolute demand. He's the king and, and like throughout all history, those great men of history like Napoleon or Alexander the Great or whatever they might be, they've, ab- they've, they've required absolute commitment where you've got to give your life for them and follow them you know, unstintantly in that absolute way. And Jesus is the king, and in particularly Matthew's gospel, he is presenting himself as this king, and his demands are absolute. Now, yes, that's true, but we have to read that and, and think about that and take that into account in the context of all of Jesus' life, where Jesus you know, talks to the woman who's been taken in adultery and, 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 and other statements he makes where, where there seems to be a breakdown of that absolute requirement that, that, that he seems to demand. Um, and this, this idea of this, it, it, just think about this idea of this absolute, absolutes on both sides of the ledger. Abs, when, he, when he presents those who are rejected, they are absolute, total, obvious people that will be rejected. Those that are accepted are almost angelic and, and have reached an absolute perfection. And, and, and they're the two extremes. And Jesus is saying, in your life, you have to be pushing towards that, that, that extreme, in a sense. Maybe in, in John's study, it was excellent how he, he brought these two extremes to, to a head, really, and said, you know, you've got these two extremes, you've got almost a, a, a psychopathic-type person who's made a list of all their achievements, and, and, and they, know, they can rattle them off and say, I've done all these great things. Haven't I done these great things? And they're aware of them, and they're, they're conscious of them. And, and they're, you know, the, the verses before talk about sheep in wolf's clothing. This is a... This is a you know, this, this person is obviously not going to be saved. They've just got this absolute extreme approach to uh, just doing things to be seen of man and they're just, it's, it's just, a, like I said, almost psychopathic. The other extreme was these people that are depicted in the parable of the sheep and goats who have this sort of axiomatic faith response in life where they're, they're virtually doing things almost automatically and, and not even aware that they're, they're doing all these things, which, again, I think you know, is something that I can't honestly say I, I'm anywhere near so, so there's these extremes that are presented by Christ to give us the direction that we should be following and that there's, he, he demands absolute perfection in that way and look we haven't got time to look at this but there's, there's a style of language Middle East, the Middle Eastern writers use a lot called an ellipsis which if you want to look up and talk about where, the, where a, an extreme statement is made and you have to fill in the gaps in a sense and, and, and make sense of it based on, on, on context etc so here's a classic case in Luke 14 and this is one of the statements of you cannot be my disciple statements that, that, that worry us a lot. He says, if any man come to me and hate not 
his father, his mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, his own life. He cannot be my disciple. You just forget it. You're just not even going to be... Don't even bother trying. That's, that's, that's the initial impression without taking, taking idiom and, and another aspects into account. This, this idea, well, you know, I don't hate my mother, brother, sister. And we sort of interpret that and say, well, by comparison, but even by comparison, really, honestly, does anyone really achieve that sort of level of, of difference between their hatred of my parents as compared to my love of Christ? It's, it's, a, it's an extreme statement, isn't it, on any level? And it's not consistent with... Christ's own words about honouring our, our mother and father, etc. So, and, and it requires a sense of interpretation about it. Um, even though in black and white, it's there in black and white, you cannot be my disciple. It's black and white, absolutely clear. So, so simplistically, we've got, to, we've, got to, we've got to be careful sometimes when we're interpreting these words and, and applying them to ourselves. There is an absolute demand of Christ. Absolute demand. Compared to your love for your family, you must hate them compared to how you respect and reverence and follow and obey me and, and in, sometimes in our life we've got to make decisions to go against our, our family because of, of, of principles etc and they, they, they do come to the fore but there it's presented in this, this sort of such so stark way as I said the parable of the talents the examples there are, as I said zero or a hundred zero response from the servant the lazy servant who buried his talent or a hundred percent achievement and again, where do I stand in that? I don't think I'm zero. I don't think I'm zero. I definitely don't think I'm 100%. So, so what, what, where do I see myself? And again, the Lord gives the parables in such an extreme way because he's calling us to this absolute perfection and absolute um, total commitment to God, even though knowing that that, that you know, is not actually going to be achieved by any of us. In fact, I suggested on our first night, he says when he's interviewing the the lazy servant, and he says, Look, why don't you just put your talent in the bank? Just get interest at least. I would have been happy with interest, which is like a 4% return. Even if you'd done something. You know, so so, so the, the, the arc of salvation, if you want to hypothetically extend it, isn't just 100%, but it, 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 there are um, other layers to that. What about the other parables? The parable of the sower. Have you thought about the parable of the sower in the terms of enduring to the end? Sometimes we think of it as just a you know, different grounds, different responses, that's it. But I think there's more in it than just a response, initial response. Or There's an endurance built into this parable, right up until the production of fruit by, in different measures. So there's the three different grounds, the wayside, the stony ground, the thorns. To me, it appears the wayside never, ever come into Christ. Those, the seed that fell on the wayside, it says they do not believe. They never believe, which means they never had faith. They never were in Christ. However, the stony ground, the thorns, did begin their life in Christ, in salvation. It says the stony ground, though, it says they, they withered away, and Jesus says they, they um, received um, persecution or embarrassment or whatever, and it says they, they fall away, or the Greek means they depart or they're removed. So sometime in their life, they're like, they're like the, per- the virgin who doesn't have the oil. They're, they're, they're like the person who built on the... On the sand and not the rock. They, they are for persecution or trials in their life, whatever. They remove themselves from the pale of salvation. The thorns, the same sort of idea. It's a result of behaviour. They become choked. And that word choked in, in Strong's means to be drowned or to become strangled. It's, it's a process. It's not just something that happens automatically. And the very first sign of the, you know, the, the thorn bush starting to sort of creep around their legs is, does not mean they're outside the kingdom at that point, it was a process where they became choked. 
And therefore it says they became barren and bore no fruit. And, and, and uh, they put themselves outside of salvation in that way. And I suppose the big question everyone's, everyone's got in their mind maybe, is says, well, okay, these, this stony ground and the thorns, they, they started a process that ended up with them being choked or having fallen away. At what point do they then put themselves outside of salvation? And, and where, where, does this, where does this actually happen? This is the thing, we don't know. And this is why we have exhortations. This is why we have bustled in Bible schools. This is why we, we, we keep strengthening ourselves and going back to God's word and, and refining, retuning our, 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 our life and examining ourselves and, and be uplifted and, and refocus on the, you know, the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit, all these things, because we, we've got to keep going towards Christ. That's, that's the whole purpose behind it, that we don't start a downward trend that eventually can lead us uh, outside God's pale of salvation. And we need to provoke each other. That's what you know, Hebrew says. Provoke one another unto love and to good works. Not that we're saying you're not going to be in the kingdom if you don't do this or that or you don't do, you know, do this or you don't speak here and that. We're, we're sort of saying lift our game because God has given us salvation and, and, and be aware of pitfalls and, and things that we can do that can start us on a path that leads eventually to destruction. And that, that's, that's the whole purpose behind it. Okay, let's just finish up with a few ideas. Who will definitely not be in the kingdom? And this, this, I think this helps us get a perspective on things as well. There are, a couple, there are a few times in the epistles where we're given lists of who will not be in the kingdom. Sorry, brother, two minutes. Okay, we, 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 we can do it. Okay, these lists are all pretty similar. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers themselves of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And I know I've heard talks where a brother will say, oh, look at all these terrible things, but there's uh, drunkenness in there, so you shouldn't drink alcohol. That's not, that's not quite a, an honest interpretation of the Bible, looking at the, the context and the position. It's, it's a lifestyle there of, of drunkenness and reveling and, and, and that, is, that is part of a lifestyle that puts someone outside the kingdom of God. And I'm talking very fast here. You can see the repetition of all these ideas um, in Galatians, in Ephesians, these people that will not be in the kingdom of God. And I think it's the, the idea of whoremonger, I don't even know if anyone knows what a whoremonger is, but it seems to be, a, in the context of the first century writings, a male prostitute. This is a lifestyle so obnoxious that it puts you outside the, the kingdom of God, which, which makes sense. Okay, we're going to rush through these. And I said, I'm sorry, I've got to rush through these so quickly. I'll, I'll get the paper over for those who want to look at these in more detail. All my explanations for these verses are not mine. They're from either you know, H.P. Mansfield or Brother Barling or Brother Carter who have looked at the context and the, the, the reality of these words, not just used them in a sort of a glib, um, sort of cliche way, but I've looked at what they're really referring to. Now, this one here, many people think sort of summarises the whole story, don't they? Many are called, few are chosen. Therefore, how can I possibly be in the kingdom, when I look around the ecclesia, I'm, there's no way I'm going to be one of those called. The reality is, without going into it in too much detail, the word chosen is a word klesis, it's a word ecclesia. Those who have entered into God's ecclesia through faith are the chosen. The called, in Jesus' time, the called were all those who heard the message, the crowds of people that surrounded Jesus and listened to his message, but never, ever joined him and became a follower of Christ. This, is a, this, this one, again, these quotes seem to blow everything I've said out of the water when you look at them on the first reading, but when you carefully look at them in their context, the, the story is quite different. This is a famous quote, 1 Peter 4, verse 18, that says, If the righteous are scarcely saved, 
You know, what will be the what will happen to the sinners? And we say, oh, the righteous are scarcely saved. Um, I remember once we put a, a judgment seat play on years ago. I think my wife was rejected in that play, which is fair enough. Um, we put a judgment seat play on, and um, one of the lines in the play was, you know, the person who gets saved says, I was saved by the skin of my teeth. And one of the brethren at the, at the, at the conference got up and said, well, I take objection with that phrase because that's not how we're saved by the skin of our teeth. We're saved because we're in Christ. Now, all of us, we're all young people going, how dare he say that? And, 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 and we got all upset with him for trying to ruin our play. And, and one of the things that we all said, what about First Peter 4? He doesn't know what he's talking about. The righteous are scarcely saved. Looking back now, he was right and I was, we were wrong. So if you, want to, if you want the answer to this section, it's not talking about the judgment seat. That's, that's, the, that's the, the quick answer. Verse 17 says, the time is come that judgment will begin at the house. So it was happening right there and then. It was the judgments or the trials that First Peter is all about trials. The trials were about to come upon the truth through Nero and eventually would lead to the destruction of the Jewish state in totality. And they, that was about to happen right there and then. And that's the, and if you want, you can read Brother H.P. Mansfield in the James for Jude Expositor and, and see that expounded in a very clear way. Now this is another one. Again, this one seems to blow, blow my whole thesis out of the water when you first read it. It says, look at Israel. They all, yeah, First Corinthians 10, they all came through the Red, the Red Sea, they were all baptised into Moses, they all ate the spiritual food, which was the, the manna, and yet most of them died in the wilderness. You go, well, they're all in the ecclesia then, they're all baptised, and then they, most of them didn't make it, so apply that to us. Now, the reality is, the comparison, I have got, I'd love to have time to dwell on this a bit longer, the comparison between a saint or a believer in Christ and an Israelite that's born into um, being a, a Jew or a Hebrew, the comparison is not is not complete. It is used for comparison, but it is not a complete um, analogy when you look at it. And this was a specific warning in 1 Corinthians 10 about brethren who thought they could go into the idol's temple where there was ritualised prostitution, and prostitution was normalised and, and condoned by society in a you know, very straightforward way, and they thought they could go there and eat and drink and, and be part of that whole lifestyle and not be led away. And it was a conf- overconfidence. And, and Paul is saying here, look, look at Israel with all the advantages they had. They saw the miracles, they saw the power of God, they saw the sea being open. And when the Moabite, the Moabite women turned up, you know, I think it was 23,000 destroyed. You know, they, they, they were annihilated as a result of that. And he says, therefore, take heed. He that thinks he stands and can handle this lifestyle, it, it will lead you in a, a way um, that is detrimental and eventually put you outside the pale of salvation. Now, that's not my interpretation. You can read Brother Barling's notes on Corinth. He says, in no case is Paul's argument, the, well, in no case in Paul's argument was the equivalence of present and past details meant to be an absolute one. Absolutely not. The, the comparison of salvation is not the same and we could talk about that for some time. But these people in Corinth, they, they started on a downward spiral by just going to the temple, you know, being part of the celebrations there and eventually partaking in, in everything else that it could offer now this one if we sin willfully this one it seems to blow everything I've said out of the water as well it's a quote in Hebrews 10 it says if we sin willfully after we've been in Christ there is no sacrifice for our sins except a, 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 looking, a fiery looking forward to of judgment think that, well all our sins are willful sins aren't they we've all, everything, everything we do is a decision when we, we make a decision therefore how can any of us be saved Again, context is king when it comes to Bible study. And you want to read, if you read Brother Carter in Hebrews, he says, 
Paul is, well, I don't know if it's Paul 100%, but we think it's Paul in Hebrews, is specifically, specifically referring to those who were going back to Judaism and treading underfoot um, the, the, the body of Christ and, and, and they're like dogs going back to their vomit. And, he, and that's the immediate context and that's what, that's what Paul's, or the writer of the Hebrews is referring to. He says, I'll just read this one because it's really powerful to see Brother Carter's statement. Although in black and white, it looks like it decimates us, doesn't it? In black and white, it looks like, how can we ever get past this verse? It's like all of us sin willfully. Brother Carter says in letter to the Hebrews, all the influences about them tended to make them leave the Christian community. There's this pressure to leave the community and go back to Judaism. He says, many anxious souls have worried over whether they have committed this willful sin. The anxiety itself is almost enough to prove otherwise. What is this willful sin? Question mark. The context on both sides of the verses fixes what it is. It is leaving the truth. That's what it is. And in the case of the Hebrews, joining hands with those who repudiated the claims of Jesus to be the Christ. So it's leaving the truth in in an extreme sense. Those who had seen the power of the Holy Spirit going back to Judaism um, were really at a a culpable level that that, that, transcends ourselves even. I was going to go through this, run out of time. I'll put these all on the, on the, on the, on the, the handout. What I did, I just sat down with my Bible and a, and a blank um, exercise book and I ruled a column and I said, I'm going to just go through the New Testament. I'm going to put on a, on a list every positive verse about salvation and I'm going to list every negative one that, seems to think, that makes salvation seem hard. And I can tell you, if you do that exercise, the positive overwhelm the negative just you know, by multiples, it's overwhelming the positive statements from Romans 5 and Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 there are just so many positive statements and they're not, they're not qualified statements to say you'll be in the kingdom if you put enough money in the bag and if you do this and if you go to the working bees and, well at Heritage College we still might to say that that, that, that is one of the ones but, but, but normally normally, um, they're, not, they're not qualified in that way they are because you're in Christ these, these, we are reconciled to God by Christ saved by his life, all these amazing positive powerful statements that literally drown out the other warning ones or the negative ones that, that appear there. Okay, what do we take away from our, from our week together? I hope that what we've talked about has made us look forward to the judgment seat rather than fearing it and looking at it with dread and, and, and terror. And I think these concepts of search me, O God, we want the judgment seat. We want God to search us, to look at all the things that, that we have wrong in our thinking and our attitudes and to remove them and to change us and to present us faultless before his presence. It leads us into the, the whole exhortational aspect of if we want that to happen, we really want that to happen, then we also can do that right now in our life and we can examine ourselves and we can get God's word to, to even now look at our consciences and our motives and we can try and be pleasing to God in our life. Just to finish up, two quick references. I'll read them out for you. This is from Brother Melva Perkis's book, The First Epistle of John. And he's quoting on these two verses. You know what I just realised? These two verses are what my whole studies hinge on. I don't think we've even, we've even read them this week. <laughs> this is pretty bizarre. Two real powerful verses in First John about confidence at the judgment seat. And Brother Melva Perkis says, We sometimes hear brethren and sisters say that they're fearful of Christ's coming. Such apprehension is perhaps understandable. But it is needless if we abide in him. If we abide in him, we shall, not, we shall anticipate his coming with joy and confidence. It is true that we are utterly unworthy of the blessings he has promised us. However, we should not shrink from him in shame at his coming. It is one of those glorious truths which cannot be learnt quickly or easily, 
but he's gradually apprehended during a lifetime with the Lord. So this is what Melva Perker says. That, that, I, th- I find that very powerful. And the final one, commenting on 1 John 4. John now goes on to show us that living in the love of God, there is no need for us to fear the impending day of judgment. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. In time past, great emphasis was placed on fear. It was almost used as a goad to drive men to obedience. Sadly, an obedience to a system rather than loyalty to God. These ideas have left a lurking dread in some minds, a dread which is kept alive by some passages of Scripture taken from its true context, which we've alluded to a few of them now. So hopefully those, those concepts will stay with us, that, that these things should make us want the judgment seat to come, that we want the return of Christ. When we apply the back porch test next time I see you and we've heard a noise in the backyard, has it been accompanied by dread in our, in our hearts, thinking this could be the angel, this could be the judgment seat, or has it been accompanied by joy that this could be the angel, this could be the judgment seat? You know, this is, this is, the, this is the, hopefully the, the mind change that we've started uh, to engender. And so this beautiful quote from Luke 12, just to finish up, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Thanks, everyone.